All right, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Now we'll be reading from verse 7 through the end of the chapter. You may be thinking, Pastor, are you going to get through 10 verses tonight? Yes. Pastor, are you going to get us done by 8 o'clock? Probably not. (laughs) I'll do my best. All right, please give your attention as God's holy word is read. Revelation 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ." I'm sure farmers would love to have a water-spewing dragon during planting season and (laughs) during growth season when (laughs) the rains don't come in Nebraska to have that water go and have the earth open up and swallow it. But uh, this is imagery, okay? This is not farming, okay? This is imagery here. But um, just a brief recap on two weeks ago. uh, We began this third cycle of seven that we see of these visions, these cycles of visions that we see uh, between Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 22. But unlike the other two cycles that we've seen so far, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, this cycle doesn't show us, at least so far, God's indirect or His direct judgment upon what we are seeing here as the inhabitants of the earth or those who dwell upon the earth. And when you see that language in Revelation, the inhabitants of the earth or those who dwell on the earth, think unbelievers. Okay, Revelation is pretty consistent that those who dwell on the earth are unbelievers because the church, the believers, we dwell in heaven. Even though we're on the earth physically, we dwell in heaven spiritually united with our head, Jesus Christ. In this cycle here that we're looking at, which goes from Revelation chapter 12 all the way through Revelation chapter 14, shows us what some have called these symbolic histories of 
redemptive history. They are symbolic because the histories are depicted in vivid imagery, much like the rest of Revelation. So you get these images of a woman, of a child, of a dragon, of a beast, of another beast uh, who is the false prophet. You got the lamb and the 144,000 in chapter 14. So you're seeing all this vivid imagery. So it's a symbolic history. But it's also a history in the sense that what we see here in these symbols is the entire scope, the entire panoply of redemptive history as one of constant struggle, constant conflict between Satan and his angels and the people of God that culminates in the Messiah. So what we saw last time in verses 1-6, through two weeks ago, this great struggle here between the woman uh, who is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, with a crown of 12 stars upon her head, uh, which we said is the people of God, whether it's Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament, the woman is symbolic of the people of God. And then this great fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns is Satan. We even read here this just briefly, you know, just previously, verse 9, we were told that this dragon is the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who accuses and deceives the whole world. And then last time we saw that this woman, the people of God, was with child. And that's the Messiah. The male child that is born is Jesus, the Messiah. And this woman has been carrying this child for countless years, millennia, thousands of years until the time is ripe. The, 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 the fullness of time comes and the Messiah comes forth. But then we see the dragon sitting there waiting, licking his chops, waiting to devour that child as that child uh, is born. And this child, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, uh, as he is born, we see in verse 5, he is immediately caught up to heaven and to his throne. It is a very short, terse, but accurate description of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we see that this woman then flees into the wilderness to be protected and sustained by God for that number that we've been seeing in various ways throughout so far, 1,260 days, which is the same as 42 months, which is the same as time, times and half a time, or three and a half years. So as we go now, as we head into our passage this evening, verses 7 through 17, um, what we're going to see here is, in a sense, a continuation of what we saw in verses 1 through 6. So if you know, if you want to call, I don't know how many people here are familiar with Mel Brooks and uh, makes a lot of funny movies or made a lot of funny movies. Um, well, he made a movie called History of the World Part 1. So if you can look at verses 1 through 6 as History of the World Part 1, verses 7 through 17 are the sequel, History of the World Part 2. Okay? And we're going to look, as it were, sort of behind the curtain. So I'm going to use another movie reference to The Wizard of Oz, as I'm sure everyone here has seen. The Wizard of Oz, when you peek behind the curtain of the, of the wizard, you see some dude pulling strings there. But what we're going to see here is we're going to look behind the curtain of this world, and we're going to see the struggle that we see here between the woman and the dragon that's happening on earth is reflected in this war that we're going to see in heaven between Satan and his angels, and Michael and his angels. 
So the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father in glory sort of shakes up the cosmic order quite a bit. And what, again, what we see here happening on earth is of a reflection of what we see happening in heaven. And that's true not just here. It's true throughout all of redemptive history. Everything we see happening on earth has a reflection in heaven. And the fact that the male child was caught up to God means uh, in heaven means that Satan has failed to stop Christ. Right? If you remember last time, again, he's sitting there waiting to devour the, one, the child. And before he, can, you know, before he can devour the child, the child has been caught up. So Satan has failed. And that's everything that we saw in the last passage is Satan trying to stop the Messiah from being born. Uh, Satan trying to thwart God's plans, trying to thwart the Messiah. You see this all throughout the Gospels as well. As when, whenever Jesus goes somewhere to do something, people try to arrest him or they try to stop him. And then you read in the Gospels, but they could not lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You see that a lot in John's Gospel. Meaning that God's protection was on his Messiah until Messiah completed his mission. So Satan was trying to do everything to keep Jesus from going to the cross. But when Jesus went to the cross and, and, and succeeded in his mission of atonement, Satan failed. Now, if Satan could have gotten Jesus killed before the cross, or if he could have gotten Jesus as he tried to tempt him to bow down and I'll give you the kingdoms, he would have thwarted God's plan. He would have tempted Christ to sort of short-circuit you know, the, the plan to go to the cross. He would have given him the kingdoms without going through the cross, but Jesus knew what God's plans were, and he, went, you know, he resisted that temptation. So Satan has failed. The decisive death blow was dealt to the, to the serpent. That's when Jesus was crucified. He, at that point, crushed the head of the serpent. His, the power of death has been defeated. The power of sin has been defeated. Um, and this, we're going to see this result in this war breaking out in heaven. But as a result of this defeat, we're going to see also Satan become desperate. And there's nothing more dangerous right, than a wounded animal who is cornered. Um, I've used this illustration before, and it's, I think it's an apt one, but in World War II, the death blow of the Nazi regime was dealt on D-Day, when you know, the Allied forces were able to gain a foothold in Europe and to start funneling forces into Europe at that point. So at that point, for all intents and purposes, you know, looking back, of course, through, the, you know, through you know, hindsight, 2020 hindsight, the war was over on June 6, 1944, but it lasted another year after that. And there was some very intense, very uh, brutal fighting at that point as you know, the Nazi regime being you know, effectively defeated was still very desperate to try to hold on to any kind of power they could. Same thing with Satan here. He is defeated, but he is now desperate. So as a result of the victory of the Christ child here being ascended to heaven, we see this war break out. And this passage we're going to see breaks down into three main points. Uh, verses 7 through 9, we're going to see Satan being cast out of heaven. And then in verses 10 through 12, we're going to see the brethren overcome the, the effects of Satan as they achieve the victory through their testimony. But then we're going to see this desperate serpent 
persecute the woman in verses 13 through 17. He's, he's now going to lash out. He's been cast out of heaven. Now he's, his, his goal is to try to make life as miserable as possible for the people of God. So first let us look at verses 7-9 through nine as Satan has been cast out. So again, we did end last time two weeks ago with Christ being snatched up to heaven and then the woman fleeing into the wilderness. Now, the question is, why is the woman fleeing into the wilderness? We didn't really get an answer to that last time. It just says that she flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God for her that they should be fed their 1,260 days. We don't know why she's fleeing. Now, we're going to find out why she's fleeing because in verse 13, we're going to see that this, the, the dragon who's been cast out persecutes the woman who gave birth to the child. But before that happens, before looking at that verse in verse 13, we see here the ascension of Christ into heaven has ripples. It causes ripples in heaven in verses 7 and 8. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they, that is the dragon and his angels, they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So as I'm arguing here, the ascension of Jesus coincides with this war in heaven. You've got on, you know, so if you're going to do like, you know, they do in the old boxing matches, you've got a tail of the tape. You've got in one corner, you've got Michael and his angels, you know, and whatever, you know, the measurement of his reach and everything, his height and his weight. And then in the other corner, you've got Satan and his angels. And you've got this battle of the century going on here. Now, who is Michael? <laughs> okay. We're introduced to this character, this man, this, this person named Michael. Now, who is Michael? Right. He's an angel. According to Jude 1, verse 9, of course, Jude only has one chapter, but according to Jude 1, verse 9, Michael is an archangel. Jude 1, 9 reads, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, I'm not going to explain all of that in that verse, but the point is that in that verse, Michael is described by Jude as an archangel. Okay? Now, as you might guess, we also see Michael in the Old Testament. Again, Revelation is best described and, and explained by going back to the Old Testament and he's referenced at least three times in Daniel's prophecy. Uh, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, we see here, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now, just a little context in that one. In Daniel 10, Daniel prays. He gets this vision in Daniel chapter 9 of the 70 weeks, and he's like, what does this mean? I've got this weird vision. I don't know how to explain it. So he prays to God for an explanation, an answer. And, you know, angels are ministering spirits. Angels are servants of God. And God dispatches a servant to go bring Daniel an answer. But this angel that was charged with the, the, the task of bringing Daniel an answer is held up by this individual called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. So he said, he withstood me 21 days. And then he says, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. 
So this angel that was sent to bring an answer to Daniel is held up, and as a result, then God sends Michael, all right, the archangel, to come and help contend with the forces here. Now you notice here these, these phrases. Michael is described as a chief prince. You've got this prince of the kingdom of Persia. These aren't people. All right? The prince of Persia is not a person. It is the demonic force that is behind the kingdom of Persia. The one there sort of running things for Satan. So these, these angels are contending with one another. Michael helps this angel, so this angel then is able to come to Daniel and finally bring him the answer to that prayer. Then later on in Daniel chapter 10, verse 21, we see here, but I, t- I, I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. In other words, you know, Michael is the prince of God's people. He's the one who watches over God's people. And this angel says, you know, no one upheld me except Michael. He came to my defense. And then finally, uh, in Daniel 12, verse 1, we see this is now a vision of the end time. It says, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book, that is the book of life. So Daniel is the great prince who watches, or sorry, Michael, I should say, is the great prince who watches over God's people. So Michael's an archangel, and being an archangel suggests something that the Bible hints at in many places, that there is a hierarchy among the angels. Okay, you've got angels and you've got archangels. You've got, you know, what are the angels that surround the throne of God in the vision of Isaiah? They're the seraphim, who are the the, the four living creatures that we see in Revelation chapter 4. They're the cherubim. These are orders of angels that have specific tasks. In the case of the cherubim, they are there to sort of guard, not that God needs to be guarded, but they're there to guard the glory of God. Right? They are his, the, his you know, special entourage, if you will. Right? You see this in Ezekiel. Okay, drinking game, Ezekiel. You see this in Ezekiel when Ezekiel gets that vision in Ezekiel 1 of these four creatures. They're sort of like, think of you know, how the kings of old, you know, you'd have, you know, he'd be sitting in a giant throne and the people would sort of, you'd have one in each corner carrying the throne, right? Well, that's what these cherubim do, except they're able to go in any direction. And they have, you know, they're described as having the face of a lion, an eagle, an ox, and a man, and they have eyes all over the place and they look to and fro. And it's the glory of God sort of moving around. It's like God's mobile throne moving around the earth. Now again, this is a vision that Ezekiel has, but you know, he's given a glimpse in that, to that invisible realm. right? We don't see that happening, but that's the reality of the invisible realm. Well, Michael's an archangel. He is of the highest level of angels here. So that's Michael. On the other side of the battle lines, you have Satan and his angels, that is the demons, those that fell with Satan when he attempted to overthrow God. He was, um, in a sense, cast out, but we'll, again, we'll get to that. So this war breaks out in heaven, mirroring events that are happening here on the earth. And behind all that goes on here in life under the sun is a great spiritual warfare that we do not see. 
Which is why Paul can say in Ephesians 6, verse 12, right? When he talks about picking up the armor of God, when he talks about spiritual warfare, he says, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. So the Christian's warfare is not against people. The Christian's warfare is against the dark forces, against uh, principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the Christian's warfare. It is a spiritual warfare against these unseen forces that are affecting everything that we see here in life under the sun. And so just as there are ranks of angels, there are also ranks of demons. We see that here in, again in Ephesians 6.12 against principalities, against powers, against rulers. Uh, so that suggests sort of a hierarchy in the demonic realm as well. And as we said earlier, this demon here, this prince of Persia figure was also a fallen angel, a demon who was sort of working behind the scenes in the kingdom of Persia. Now we see as this war rages on in heaven between Michael and, and the dragon, um, we see that the dragon and his angels do not prevail. They are not able to be victorious in this war. And John sees then that after the, the, that conflict is over and Michael and his angels are victorious, we see that there's no place found for them in heaven. They are a vanquished enemy. So now there's no longer a place for them in heaven. So what happens next? We see that in verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out. And in case you don't know who the dragon is, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. John wants to make sure you're very aware of who the dragon is and who he represents. He, this one who deceives the whole world, you know, and that's what you know, John says about Satan, right? He says he's the father of lies. He is a murderer from the beginning. So this dragon was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So since there is no room in heaven, now don't think that you know, heaven is like a physical location, like there's no room anymore. It's like, okay, you, you know, we ran out of places here. We're going to have to kick you out. That's not the idea here. The idea is that there's no, there's no angelic sort of POW camp. Okay? They are vanquished. They are banished from the place of God. They are banished from heaven and cast down to the earth. Now to Mark's question, when does this happen? When is this battle happening that we see here in which Satan gets cast out? Now, one popular option, there are three options, I'm going to give you three. One popular option is that this war in heaven occurred at the very beginning, and is that initial revolt of Satan and his demons when he revolted against God, and he was defeated and he was cast out. Another popular view is that this war in heaven happens at the very end in the final battle of Armageddon when Satan and his demons are finally and fully and, um, defeated in a consummate way. But I'm going to argue here that this war happens, as one commentator says, we must realize that this battle took place during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, culminating with his ascension into heaven. And that's the, the option I'm going to argue for. And I'm going to argue for that for several reasons. One, it fits in with the thematic unity that we see here in Revelation chapter 12. This unit, what Revelation chapter 12 suggests is that this war 
is a result of the male child being born and caught up into heaven, uh, caught up to God in heaven and caught up to his throne. So as a result of that, this war breaks out, Satan is defeated, and he's cast down to the earth. Now, being cast out of heaven as a result of the original satanic revolt, in a sense, really doesn't make sense of other verses that we see in the Old Testament, like Job 1.9, Job chapter 2, verses 4-5, through 5, and Zechariah 3.1. We're going to look at those in a little more detail. But in all three of those verses, we see Satan coming before God. You know, you know how the story of Job goes, right? You know, Job 1 and 2 starts with, you know, you're, t- you're introduced to Job and how righteous he is, and then you see... And then, you know, it was a time when the sons of God come before God and, and Satan comes in and God goes to Satan and says, where have you, where you been? And Satan's like, I've been going to and fro. And, and then God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan says, does Job worship you for no reason at all? It's like you've put a hedge of protection around. So there is Satan in the presence of God accusing Job to God. He is the accuser of the brethren. If Satan had been cast out of heaven at the beginning, at the fall, even before the fall of humanity, he wouldn't be allowed into God's throne room at that point in Job. And we see the same thing in Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3, Satan again is there accusing, as we will see in a little bit, Joshua the high priest during the time of the return to Jerusalem where they're there to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city walls and all that. We see this vision Zechariah gets of Joshua the high priest and he's standing there in these dirty garments and Satan's there accusing him saying you know your high priest look at him he's filthy he's in these dirty rags he shouldn't be here and then we see the son of man you know the you know the angel of the Lord says I rebuke you Satan and then gives him a robe of righteousness well we're going to look at those in a little bit more detail later so I don't think it means being cast out during the original revolt. And I also don't think it means being cast out at the end of Armageddon because at the end of that battle, what happens to Satan and his demons? I know we're going ahead to Revelation 20, but yeah, they're cast in a lake of fire. So, you know, that's the end, the end, the end, right? So, you know, at that point, what's, you know, there's no point in being cast down the earth. They're cast into the lake of fire, which is, you know, the place reserved for Satan and his demons and the false prophet and the beast and all those other people. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now to support my view, which is I think it's the third one, where... Satan is cast out as a result of the life, death, and ascension of Jesus Christ. When Christ won his victory in the cross, he effectively defeated sin, death, and the devil. In fact, looking ahead in his own ministry, Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, now Luke chapter 10, that's when he sends out the disciples to go minister. He sends out the 70 to go minister. And they come back and they tell Jesus, it's like, we cast out demons in your name. And we did all these wonderful miracles in your name. And Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 18, he said to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So he is already, during his own earthly ministry, he is looking ahead and he sees that Satan is being cast out of heaven as a result of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And when we get there, Lord willing, in John chapter 12, at some point in the future, should our Lord tarry, 
We see John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus again says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan. He's the ruler of this world, in, the, in a sense. Okay? It is God's world, but Satan is kind of has control over these things. And Jesus says, I, I saw him, he will be cast out. And it also comports well with what Paul says in Colossians 2.15, now, looking back on the ministry of Jesus Christ, he says that, that you know, the victory that Jesus won, he disarmed principalities and powers, those are demons, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, again, the life ministry of Jesus Christ as he's resurrected to heaven is the final victory, and he makes a public spectacle of these princes, principalities, and powers triumphing over them. So Jesus' decisive victory in the cross results in Satan being cast out as a defeated and vanquished foe. Now, when we get there, I will argue that what you see here, and we could turn ahead too, so peek ahead at Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. I wasn't going to read this, but let's do it anyway. The casting out of Satan, I'm going to argue, is equivalent to what you see in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 and 3. And again, remember, Revelation likes to show realities from different perspectives. So here we see being, Satan being cast out, but in Revelation chapter two, 20, verses 2 and 3, uh, after a, this angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. See the same, you know, John likes to make sure you know who this dragon is. Uh, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So this binding of Satan, we can use the leash here too. So you know, we've got the leash. Satan is leashed and he's cast into the bottomless pit. Right? He's cast down to earth so he can no longer deceive the nations. So, I'm, like I said, I'm going to argue that that's, it's the same reality what we're seeing here in chapter 12, just from a different perspective. So, Satan is cast out. Now, as you would expect in any you know, movie with good guys and bad guys, when the bad guy is defeated, what do the good guys do? What happened on VE Day when, 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 the, out, when the, 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 the Axis powers um, conceded the, uh, defeat and the Allies were victorious? What happened? Big celebration, right? You, uh, the good guys cheer. That's what we see now in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, we're going to see here the brethren overcome. So after this casting out of heaven, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. So this loud voice in heaven announces the good news. Satan has been defeated. He has been cast out. He is no longer able to accuse you before God. He's, that's what he was able to do. But Christ has won the victory. Now he's no longer able to accuse you because he has been cast out. Out. 
And again, that announcement that salvation and strength have come and the kingdom of God is established confirms what we've been saying all along, that this is all in response to Christ's victory on the cross and his coronation at God's right hand. So Christ's victory on the cross, his victory over sin and death and the devil on the cross is not just something that we experience in our own lives, and it's, it's true, right? I mean, his victory on the cross gives us hope that our sins are forgiven. It gives us hope in our justification. It gives us hope in our future glorification. But it is also something that has an effect in the heavenly realm. And that effect is that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, has been cast out. Satan is the one who accused the brethren, accused the people of God before God, day and night. Um, again, you know, you think... You know, that's exactly what he does, right? He goes up before God and says, have you seen what so-and-so has done? Have you seen what so-and-so has thought? And again, now we can go to the book of Job. Um, You could turn there because it's going to be a bit of a, not a lengthy, lengthy passage, but Job chapter 1. It's before the book of Psalms. Now, I hinted at this earlier, but it's good to kind of get the, the actual text before us. Starting in verse 9, or sorry, verse 6, I should say, of chapter 1, reading through verse 9. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And in Job chapter 1, verse 6, we read, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan. Now if you have a New King James, um, you might have a footnote there, and the footnote says the adversary, that's what the word in Hebrew means. The adversary also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? And maybe just going on in verse 10, Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So what's Satan doing there in the case of Job before God? He's accusing him, right? (laughs) He's saying, like, wait, you're you're he goes up to God's like, you're telling me Job is this righteous man? Well, he says he's righteous because you've given him everything. Look at this. Read verses one through through five. It's like, look at how blessed Job is. Anybody who has had that much blessing would, would follow you. Says, How about this, God? Why don't you take away what he has and then see what happens? He will curse you. And then we know the story, right? God says, okay, have at it. <laughs> have at it. Unless you think this is only happening to Job. Of course, we can, um, before I say that, but then you can flip over to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So after, Joe, after Satan takes away everything Job has, right? Destroys his farmland, destroys his cattle, kills his family. Only Job is left and his wife. And now in chapter 2, again, 
There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? It's kind of a repeat of the previous section. Satan says, well, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. And he will surely curse you to your face. So Satan's first attack doesn't work. But he goes back and he just says the same thing. It's like, okay, well, you took away all his stuff, but you didn't touch him. If you touch him, surely he will curse you again. And then Satan, God says, okay, have at it. Only don't kill him, right? And the rest of the story goes on. And again, lest you think this only happened to Job, notice how Satan says, what is he doing? When God says, where are you, you, know, where are you coming from? Satan says, I've been going to and fro across the face of the earth. That's what Satan does. He's, 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 not, he's not idle, right? You know, idle hands may be the devil's workshop, but the devil's hands aren't idle either. He's going to and fro, looking whom he can accuse, looking whom he can deceive, looking whom, for whom he can devour. And then consider further also what happens to Joshua the high priest. So now you can turn to Zechariah. It's getting closer to the New Testament. Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. And Zechariah chapter, or it's Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, my bad. But Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah chapter 3. This is the vision of the high priest. And we see here, then he showed me, this is God showing Zechariah the prophet. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Usually the angel of the Lord, when you see that, is typically a pre-incarnate Christ. And Satan, the adversary, standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Referring to Joshua. Now Joshua is clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. That's why Satan is accusing him. He's standing there to oppose him because here is the high priest of God's people standing in a filthy garment, meaning, again, this is a vision, but Joshua is a sinner. (laughs) Like we all are sinners. And he's standing there in filthy garments of his own works, before the Lord, and Satan's about to accuse him, but the angel of the Lord says, no, I rebuke you. Then in verse 4, then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And he said, and to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. So again here, Satan stands ready to call out the sin of Joshua, But the angel of the Lord rebukes Satan and then clothes Joshua in a clean robe. So he takes his iniquity from him and gives him the robe of righteousness, this imputed righteousness that we all receive through faith, by grace through faith. So before the cross, 
You can go back to Revelation 12. Before the cross, Satan could accuse the people of God as transgressors of God's law, right? Because it's at the cross that God pays for the penalties of sin. We see this in Romans 3, right? Up until that point in time, God overlooked the sins of his people. But up until that time, Satan could always bring the sins before God. It's like, what are you going to do about this? He, he accuses us. Satan says, look at him. Look at her. Look at how he or she has broken your law. Look at what they've said. Look at what they're thinking. But the victory that Christ wins shuts the mouth of the accuser. When Christ wins the victory, Satan has no place now before God to accuse him. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because if you're in Christ now, there is no more condemnation. Satan cannot touch you. And then later on, at the end of Romans 8, in verses 31 to 34, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? God has already reconciled us. God has made us just. He has declared us justified. Who is going to raise a charge now? That's Paul's point. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for his all, how shall he not with Christ also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? What's the answer to that question? No one. Not one person? No one. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So there's no room now for the accuser. Couple of comments from some commentators here. This one from Thomas Schreiner. He said, previously, Satan could legitimately sorry, Satan could legitimately accuse believers in God's presence because of their sin. But now that sins are cleansed and forgiven through the cross, he has no grounds for accusation. He has no standing or place in the presence of God. Another commentator wrote, this one is Dennis Johnson, uh, as a great voice in heaven makes clear, the battle symbolizes the truth that Satan has been disbarred from his status as prosecutor in the court of divine justice. And I like that imagery because, again, you know, Satan is the accuser. It's like his law license has been revoked. I revoke your law license. You no longer have any legal standing in this court. Cast out. He is cast out. So the kingdom has come in its spiritual dimension. Christ rules and reigns at the Father's right hand. The church is growing and the gates of hell cannot prevail. This is victory. So we see in verse 11. And they, the brethren, those who have been accused by the dragon for all this time, they overcame him. They overcame the dragon. How? By the blood of the Lamb. So our victory is not because of anything we've done. It's not because of our righteousness or our strength or our cunning or our craftiness, but by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony and the fact that we do not love our lives to the death. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and washes us clean from all defilement. So there's nothing with which to accuse us. What sins can we be accused of now? They've all been paid for. <laughs> There's no debt to be brought. 
You cannot try to make a collection on this debt because the debt has been paid in full. Right? Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. It is paid in full. Exactly. Hallelujah. Amen to that. And the brethren now overcome through the word of their testimony, confessing Christ Jesus as Savior, placing our complete faith and trust in Him, secures the salvation that He works for us. It is in our testimony that that speaks to the world and confirms that we are His. And more than that, it's the fact that we do not love our lives to the death. So overcoming Satan is evidenced by the fact that the brethren would rather lose their lives to gain Jesus than to preserve our lives to gain the world, right? What does Jesus say, right? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul, right? Rather, you lose the world and gain your soul. And that's why, you know, we could say if you're willing to lose your life for the sake of Jesus Christ, then death is what? What does Paul say in Philippians 1? What is death? Gain. <laughs> what can death do to me? What can, what can, you know, all you're doing is just, you're just sending me to Jesus faster, right? <laughs> That's all you're doing to me. You're sending me to my Lord faster. Our victory is complete. Our sins are forgiven so Satan can no longer accuse us. And our salvation is secure so that death simply brings us into the arms of our Savior. And that's why we see in verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That's us. Again, we dwell in heaven. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So the heavens rejoice because Christ is victorious and Satan has been cast out. And those who dwell in heaven also rejoice. Those are us. We're the believers. Our citizenship is not on earth. Paul says that in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And then by virtue of our union with Christ, we are now seated in the heavenly places now. Ephesians 2. Because we are united with Christ, we are in the heavenly places now, seated with Christ. But, in a way this is a good but, but also a bad but. It's not all cookies and cream for those who dwell on the earth, right? The inhabitants of the earth experience woe. Not like what you say to a horse, like woe. But this is woe as in cursing, right? The pronouncement of curse. Satan has been cast down to earth and he is not happy. He is angry. And he's also desperate because he knows he has only a short time. So now, verses 13 through 17, we're going to see the woman persecuted. And because the dragon now knows that his time is short, he begins to lash out. Having failed to devour the male child of the woman and having been cast down to the earth, the dragon persecutes the woman. Verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. As we said, this corresponds to verse 6, where the woman flees into the wilderness. She flees... Because the dragon is persecuting her. This is all he has left, right? I mean, this is all Satan has left. He's, he has no more bullets in his gun except to lash out in anger at the church. Satan can't accuse us. He can't affect our eternal salvation. But he can make our lives in this world miserable. The point is that Satan persecutes the church here on earth 
Not because he thinks he can take away our salvation, but because he knows that he cannot. (laughs) Think about that. He lashes out because he knows he cannot take away our salvation. The devil is driven by pure malice in the face of defeat. And it reminds me of what Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So because we are united with Christ, the world will hate us. Because we are not of the world, the world will hate us. And all of this is initiated by the dragon and his hatred of the woman and the child as he lashes out at her. But, another but, verse 14. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So just as the dragon seeks now to persecute the woman, to persecute the people of God, she is swept along by God into the wilderness. Now if you're thinking this, is fami- this sounds familiar, it's because it is familiar. We heard this this morning, right? Exodus 19.4. Uh, as God tells His people, He says, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. That's the image that's being brought here in this as the woman is given wings of an eagle and is swept along to her place of protection. So just as God bore uh, Israel away from Egypt on eagle's wings, so too the woman is borne away on eagle's wings. Gives, it makes her swift, right? She could fly fast. Born away on eagle's wings to be protected. And really, I think what we're seeing here, in a sense, is a new exodus. You know, again, the, the Exodus motif that we see in the Old Testament is carried through throughout the whole uh, panoply of redemptive history. Uh, the people of God are now, the church is in a new Exodus. The imagery of the people of God uh, in the New Testament age is that of we're in the wilderness, right? We are strangers in a strange land. We are pilgrims on a journey to a new promised land. So yeah, we're in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness and we're being carried along by these eagle wings. We're on this pilgrim journey to our new promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. And I say this, this idea of a new exodus, I say this really to confront, I hesitate to see two errors, but maybe just two, I'll just call them errors, what the heck. Two errors in thinking, in Christian thinking. Uh, One error I see is an overly triumphalistic attitude that sees the church as ushering in the kingdom of God. So the church will be victorious on the earth, will usher in the kingdom of God, and then Christ returns, the house is clean, and he's like, thank you, church, for ushering the kingdom of God. There are those who believe that. Some of those are, you know, you typically see that in a post-millennial type of mindset. But also, confronting a second error, so it confronts this overly triumphalistic attitude, but also maybe an overly compromised attitude that sees the world as redeemable, that somehow the church can redeem society, the church can... The only thing that can be redeemed are people, right? This idea of redemption is to buy back. And the only people who are... The only things that are bought back are the people of God who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We don't redeem this world, right? We can make, try to make this world better. We should try to make this world better. 
But we don't try to redeem this world. We are in the wilderness. That is our mentality. That is our mindset. We are pilgrims. This world is not our home. Right? The old spiritual, right? This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Right? That's the idea. We are in the wilderness. And notice how long the woman is protected in the wilderness. We see this again. We keep coming back to this. Time and times and half a time. This three and a half year period. So for three and a half years, representing the church age, representing the time between Christ's ascension and Christ's return in glory at the end of the age, for that period of time, the woman is nourished and kept from the serpent. Now you notice how you know, John sees this vision. The, the vision keeps changing. It's a dragon, it's a serpent, it's a dragon, it's a serpent. So even though this woman is nourished and kept from the serpent, it doesn't stop the, the dragon. We see this in verse 15. So the serpent, the dragon, spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. So he can't get her. <laughs> he's trying to get her. She's carried away. So now he's like, okay, I'm going to send floodwaters out and try to get you. Now, not literal, right? This is all figurative. This is all visionary. But this is just Satan, again, trying to lash out at the people of God. Now, what do these waters represent? I'm hoping maybe you can help me on this one. I didn't have time to... No, I'm kidding. I had time. I had a lot of time to check this out. What comes out of Satan's mouth? Lies. Deceit. Yeah. These waters coming out of serpent's mouth are lies. These waters represent every kind of lie, every kind of deceit, every kind of falsehood, every kind of error that Satan uses to turn away people from their God. But you have to remember, we are sealed, right? The people of God are sealed. And that sealed means not only protected from uh, falling away, but also protection from the deceptions of the, of the, Satan, of the serpent. Again, remember, when in uh, Revelation chapter 20, when Satan is cast down and he's, he's leashed, and he says he's leashed and bound so that he will not deceive the nations any longer. The gospel can go forth. So these waters do not affect us. We are sealed and protected. So verse 16, we see here that even the very earth gets in on the action to save God's people. The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon spewed out of his mouth. So just as God provides and protects the people during this wilderness wandering, so too does God protect and provide for his people during this time in the wilderness. But, undeterred from this, the dragon now starts to go after the offspring of the woman in verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. Okay, I can't get the woman. I, whatever, I, everything I do, I cannot get this, this, this woman. I tried to devour her. She's swept away. I tried to wash her away with the lies of the floodwaters of my lies and deceits. And, and the earth opens up. So now I'm enraged. So now I'm going to go make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now it might be tempting to see the woman and her offspring as two different people, two different entities. Uh, you know, Some will say, well, the woman is Israel and then her offspring are the church. But I'm, I'm going to argue that we're gonna, we should resist this temptation. As I mentioned earlier, Revelation is notorious 
for showing realities from two different perspectives, from multiple perspectives. And the point of this image is that even though we, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, even though we are provided and protected by God in the wilderness, we are still vulnerable to the attacks of the dragon. So he makes war on us. But again, as verse 11 says, we overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony, and we do not love our lives to the death. So wrapping up here, verse 17 here says that the dragon makes war, right? Makes war with the rest of her offspring. He makes war against the church. And that's what we're going to see uh, in chapter 13 as we begin to look now at these two beasts that the dragon will summon to aid him in his task, right? That's what we're going to see after that verse. We look to verse 13, verse 1. It says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw the, a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, and so on and so forth. So the dragon can't get him, so he's like, okay, I need help. So I'm going to raise these two beasts to help me. Now we're going to look at that next time. We're going to look at the first beast next time. So I'm going to leave you with a little bit of a cliffhanger here and hopefully entice you to come back in, in three weeks when we meet again. But we're going to see these two great beasts that the dragon summons to aid him. But to, what we should take away from chapter 12 is that this period that we're seeing here, this 42 months, 1260 days, this three and a half years, is a time of wilderness wandering for the people of God, for the church. But we are preserved during this time. God preserves us uh, protects us, firm in our faith, but we're still under attack. Again, remember in 11, chapter 11, where we see the temple being measured, but then we see that the outer court is under siege. Again, this sort of, almost, if you will, paradox of the people of God protected, yet under siege at the same time. And this is the history of God's people, right? From the garden all the way to the second coming, we are protected by God, but we're still under siege by the devil. And then, like I said, next time, which, Lord willing, will be November 7th, we'll start to look at these two great beasts that Satan raises up to aid him in his war on the offspring of the woman.